Imagine if you were going about the normal details of your normal human life. Working, seeing friends, getting groceries, paying bills, enjoying the things that bring you enjoyment. When, with an overwhelming speed and with an almost spectacular intensity, you were suddenly as sick as you'd ever been in your whole life. Wave upon wave of high fever, then chills. Weakness all over. Pain in your head, throat, chest, joints. Awful sickness. Today slowly bleeds into tomorrow, then the next day. And then everything becomes a fog of non-recognition. From time to time, you awake aware. You see your mother whispering to a doctor or a neighbor of yours scurrying around the house trying to help her. You have absolutely no idea of what is happening to you. Everything is confusion, a mental fog, sickness, the sense of a growing, quiet, gnawing dread. But then, suddenly, it's over. You open your eyes and feel as good as you've ever felt. And in fact, you look at your hands and rapidly move your fingers. Everything about you feels so wonderfully vibrant and utterly good. Like, really, really good. You look up to see that you're in an enormous, magnificent-looking place. The ceilings recede away to an infinite height. Everything is beautiful, sparkling, The walls and windows seem to gleam with a kind of impossible glory. You stand to your feet and walk through the loveliness of this atmosphere until, coming to a tall pair of doors, you push them inward. Nothing prepares you for the sights on the other side. A royal throne room filled as far as the eye can see with white-robed men and women, saints and angels, the congregation surrounding the throne of heaven. The walls and pillars and floors and visible upper vaults are all wrought in the goldest gold. Their very texture shouts, glory! A center aisle, making its way down through the center of the angel army, sparkles with a tile work made entirely of precious jewels. You begin to walk your way toward the front, toward the throne when you see him. The king of all this glory, the ruling power of this kingdom of heaven, the one who sits enthroned at the right hand of Father God, and he smiles at you, beckons you, come forward. You continue walking toward him. He is seated there in the likeness of a man, bearded and gleamingly white-robed. His face is the definition of both power and love. You are caught up in his gaze as you walk forward toward him. His eyes never leave yours for an instant. And you are nearly toward the front of the throne room of heaven, nearly to the steps to take you up to him when... Somewhere else, you hear a voice speaking. Young man, I say to you, wake up. You open up your eyes. You are lying against the hard inner surface of a coffin.
Your movements cause the pallbearers nearly to drop you. They set you down to the ground and rip off the lid. And after the sunlight dazzles your eyes for a moment, you start to see the scene all around you, lying there in a coffin at the gateway of your town, Nain. The burial ground over there, the stand of trees where the forests begin. Almost the entire population of your town standing there, agape. The blue of the sky overhead, the quiet wafting along of the big white clouds, the overhanging arch of the town's gate above you. And then you see the face of your mother. She is so overwhelmed that she can hardly bring herself to touch you. And that's when you see him. The one you were just seeing on the other side, there. The king of heaven himself. He is smiling at you from the midst of the rejoicing crowd. Many years later, one of the men who'd been standing there, there at the village gate of Nain, as it's told to us in Luke chapter 7, that man wrote this about the experience of encountering Jesus. This comes from 1 John 4. To us, the greatest demonstration of God's love for us has been his sending his only son into the world to give us life through him. In other words, the story of the dead young man at Nain is the story of every single one of us. We were utterly dead, and then God, because of a love so strong that it looked like Jesus, gave us life. And not just by the waving of some magical spiritual wand, no, by the glorious living presence of that very one, Jesus himself. He gave us life through him. John goes on. We see real love, not in the fact that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to make personal atonement for our sins. And by the way, the personal atonement of Jesus, the causing us to be at one with God, was not just personally accomplished only at the cross. It is his death and life that brings us into alignment with God's original intention, ongoing, eternal experience of union. When I say that word union, when you think of what it would be like to live in constant oneness with God, how would you describe the sensation of what that would be like? Like what words would come to mind? Safety? Contentment? Belonging? I know for me this week, I thought of the main word would be love. Yes, love. The love of God, which is his very essence. The love of God so lovely that its most natural emanation was that bearded man at the gate of Nain. John goes on. We ourselves are eyewitnesses, able and willing to testify to the fact that the Father did send the Son to save the world. And what is the essence of his saving of the world? 
Well, it's the extension of his own life and love into it. The glorious fact that our salvation is not words and understandings of some principle. Our salvation is the word who is Jesus. The man who said to the inhabitant of a closed coffin, young man, wake up, is the same one whose life and love says the same to our hearts every day. We may wake up every morning and experience the life of heaven, the life of Jesus for ourselves. John goes on again. Everyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God lives in him, and he lives in God. So, we have come to know and trust the love God has for us. How? Well, I would say by learning to live in him and letting him live in us. By deriving our daily lives from his life. By believing that there is nothing higher or better than giving our whole hearts to Jesus and seeing what he can do with them. Because after all, Who is he? John goes on. God is love. That's who he is. That's the definition of God, love. And really the definition of love is God. And not just like mathematical equivalencies, two plus two equals four. No, these very things are what they are. They are synonymous. God and love are one and the same. So, practically speaking, what does that mean? John says, And the man whose life is lived in love does, in fact, live in God. And God does, in fact, live in him. So, for the dead young man at Nain, And for all of us seeking true and eternal life in Jesus, what is the power that gives life to the dead? What was the actual power, the force, the energy being transmitted that resurrected that human life? I think the answer is love. It was the love of Jesus, the love of the one who is himself love that gave that mother back her lost son. It is our learning to live and abide and actually share in that love that teaches us the way of God that is the only true life. We must learn to love like him if we would live. That's why we have to consistently encounter Jesus. John goes on. So our love for him grows more and more filling us with complete confidence for the day when he shall judge all men. And please listen to this. For we realize that our life in this world is actually his life lived in us. Here's a question for you. What did you think before about the theology of my narrative, of that idea of Jesus being both there and also here? What did you think about that? Did that ring true for your understanding of his person and really his eternality? Because the reason I took that theological risk, kind of putting him in both places at the same time, is for two reasons. Romans 14, 8, and 9, 
and the daily opportunity that is ours in being his. So first, listen to Romans 14, 8, and 9. At every turn, life links us to God. And when we die, we come face to face with him. In life or death, we are in the hands of God. Christ lived and died that he might be the Lord in both life and death. So according to Paul, our first experience of life after death is the experience of that wondrous face. That was the first reason I had for narrating Luke 7 as I did. And the second? Well, it's the overwhelming. I cannot stop thinking about this reality that he would choose me, that he would choose you to be the direct extension of his life unto the earth, that he'd want to transmit his own heavenly, eternally enthroned on the throne of heaven life to this generation through a medium called me and you and us together. So my friends, as we close out these five weeks of considering what it means to encounter Jesus, here's my reminder to you. He is alive, both here and there. We are alive, both here and there. Let's live that way. Thanks for listening.